Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is Chad Lineweaver. He's the author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, A History of Irving College. Named after the famed author Washington Irving, Irving College of Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, was founded during a nationwide trend in the 19th century to educate women. The school was a typical the school was typical of many small women's colleges, training teachers, home economists, and organists, and reached a golden age under the charismatic Dr. E. E. Campbell. But the college could not survive a lack of an endowment and the death of its famed president in the late 1920s. Chad E. Lina Weaver is the director of the Morristown and Morris Township Library and has authored portions of the Dictionary of New Jersey History and Preserving Local Writers, Genealogy, Photographs, Newspapers, and Related Materials. Chad is a Mechanicsburg native and research on Irving College while in graduate school at uh, Northeastern University. Welcome, Chad Lina Weaver. Hey, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, there I am, stumbling over your name. Apologize for that. <laughs> Lina Weaver, Lina Weaver, Lina Weaver. There, I got it. Okay. Uh, seriously, though, uh, the Mechanicsburg connection is, is really interesting. And, you know, I'll just tell the audience that I, I stumbled upon this master's thesis that I mentioned in the opening while researching Irving College for a book I intended to write. And uh, lo and behold, there was this beautiful book-length manuscript already done. You did a fan like half the time. <laughs> I'm like, well, I, it's almost plagiarizing it. I better stop. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it was such a good piece of work. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you agreed to, uh, up, to help us update it and, and get it out there. So, yeah, I mean, what was it like to get a call from a publisher about a master's, th- some schoolwork you did 20-some years ago, 30 years ago? Lawrence, it's really funny because I want to say at the at the point that I wrote it in the middle '90s, I reached out to sort of like the like publishers and things then to try to get it published. And now Simpson Library, but then was Mechanical Gate Public Library, you know, was keen on us getting it published and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it just didn't. It wasn't something that anybody wanted to publish at the time. And about every so many years. I will get somebody that reaches out to me. And I think that's part of it, like the growth of the internet out to me and be like, oh, you know, I was doing a project on women's colleges. And then like another five or six years go by. And then there was somebody who was like an adult ed student who was like very into local history and stuff. So when you reached out, I was sort of like, oh, here's somebody else that just stumbled across like the Wikipedia entry or something like that. (laughs) So I was a little flabbergasted, to be quite honest with you. Uh, well, I did do some research and tracked you down, and uh, hopefully my email seems serious enough. I, obviously, you eventually <laughs> responded to it after maybe two or three tries. But <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I think the issue with Irving College, too, is I mean, basically now a couple of the buildings remain. There is a historic marker there, but it's really forgotten, except by a few locals who, who know about it. And Irving was not the first, and it was not the biggest or most famous women's college, but it certainly plays an important part. And it's really cool to think about Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, which is not a very big town. Uh, you know, it had a had a college right in the midst of it. 
back in the day. Yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit about how it got started and why, why we should care about Irving College. You know, it's it's funny because, like, I, I think I came across it the same way you did when you see that state marker on um, uh, Simpson Street, or not Simpson Street, on um, Trindle Road. Yeah. And, and it's just sort of like, oh, this was here? And I was so interested in local history when I was in high school and taking photographs around town and all that type of thing. And, you know, I think the the nice thing is that is Irving Colleges and its founding and it's sort of its history was pretty much documenting a major trend that was going on because um, really the formalization of a lot of education wasn't really happening till the 19th century anyway. Um, and if you had higher education, it was only for men and usually it was for lawyers, doctors, clergy, and that was about it. And then it wasn't until you got into the 19th century where that started to change but it wasn't changing for women for a long time. But um, so there were a number of, and the thing that surprised me the most doing the research is how many other like little local uh, women's colleges were being founded that weren't super far away. I think there was one in Fayetteville. Um, there definitely Wilson college up in Chambersburg uh, was founded, you know, sometime after as well, but there were these little specks of colleges all around. And that's part of the reason why I did the one appendix in the back. Cause I think started to keep track of them after a while. Yeah. Um, cause I'd find references to something. I'm like the, you know, such and such Pittsburgh female Institute or whatever. I'm like, what is this? You know? And that labeled me to track it down. Cause initially I thought like, Oh, it's got this marker. It must be one of the first in Pennsylvania. Well, no, it was not. Uh, but the part of the problem was that so many women's colleges fought against, you know, essentially males who didn't want women to be educated. So you had some that opened, that were really just glorified high schools. You had others that claimed to have college courses and they weren't. And that was a struggle that they, that really lasted pretty much into the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. It's, it seems like, uh, at least early on looking at the various ephemera associated with the college and, and what you've researched and written about the curriculum in the early days was very classical oriented, more literature and music oriented. Um, uh, later on becomes a little bit more business oriented and home home economic oriented if i'm not mistaken um yeah and i go ahead. Yeah, absolutely and i think that uh that's one of the th i think the and that's one of the things that uh, campbell and you well know is that he did not want the school to deviate all that much early victorians you learned greek you learned cicero you learned all these types of things and that was education and then as the college grew, he sort of had to acquiesce on offering more and more music and art classes and drama and then especially um, home economics classes and things like that because that's what students flock to the school for. And so he's like, all right, well, I have to at least provide this on some level. Yeah, now the student body, it, it seemed like in some of the letters there were, there were young ladies coming from many states away. Uh, but do, do you have versus out-of-state students? Was there any anything on that that you recall? Yeah, I, I almost sort of think of it akin now to sort of like a – like my daughter goes up to uh, Leslie University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so she's coming from New Jersey. She's one – you know, she's one of just a handful of students that aren't from like the, the immediate, you know, New England area. You know, most, you know, kids are going to schools that are relatively close. And they had a whole program for – um, day students. In fact, they actually would, they almost would construct a program for you in some ways where 
if you wanted to just go to school during the day and that was it, or you wanted to board just for the week, but not on the weekends or whatever, they would almost construct a different types of things for students, depending on what their needs were. So it was very flexible. And I think the fact that it was smaller made that beneficial, but there, there were definitely, there was even international students that mm-hmm. came, which I, I, I that be, that's one thing I did not research. And I wondered how many other small schools like that were attracting some international students. I'm assuming some, and I'm assuming the big seven sister schools, you know, Vassar and Bryn Mawr and Radcliffe and Barnard and all them, probably they were pulling in students from, you know, Europe at least and things like that. But um, but yeah, primarily it was generally greater Pennsylvania. After the Civil War, there was a lot less students from the South. Um, I think a lot, I think in the early part of the 19th century, a lot of um, uh, Southern families were apt to send their daughters or sons northward for college. And that started to curtail in the 1860s and really didn't bounce back much more. I almost, I guess it probably did at Irving once you got into the 20th century, but yeah. Uh, but that curtailed some. Well, Chad, we have to take our first break. We're talking about the history of Irving College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books opens the door to Pennsylvania Dutch and German history with our imprint, Distal Fink Press. Find out about the lives of figures in early American history through the Muhlenbergs of Pennsylvania or Conrad Weiser, Friend of Colonist and Mohawk by Paul A. Wallace, Joseph G. Rosengardens, The German Soldier in the Wars of the United States, or The Indians of Berks County by D.B. Bruner. Check out the wide variety of available works, both fiction and nonfiction, at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Chad Lineweaver, the author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, A History of Irving College. Chad, uh, I was thinking about the Civil War period. You kind of brushed over that. I, there's an anecdote about the soldiers coming through on a train, across that or any other anecdotes from that period. It seemed to be a pretty tense time, not knowing what was going to happen, would the college stay open or not. And uh, Oh, the- yeah. Yeah, well, there's the famous... Um I think it's is it Robert Charles Anderson, who I think it was the defender at Fort Sumter, and he came through in the Cumberland Valley Railroad. And you know, one thing I and, so, and he actually met up with um, students at Irving. So I think there were students on the train, if memory serves correctly, and they convinced um, the train conductor to stop for a few minutes at Irving College, and he greeted a number of the students and the president and things like that. And it's funny to think about something like that because. <clears throat> You know, there wasn't the idea of celebrity in the 1860s as it is today. And you didn't have posses around people necessarily and all that kind of stuff. You had people taking regular public transit like everybody else. Right. And the Cumberland Valley Railroad was, you know, it was more or less like you have to take a flight from New York to L.A., you know, and you got to get from Harrisburg to, you know, downward to Cumberland Valley. You took that railroad. You didn't have many other options. And, um so that definitely happened. But, yeah, there was definitely some concern during the war. And there is some documentation that uh, the school kept worrying about closing during its time period. I think there was one or two instances where I think they did send girls home early at different breaks and things like that. Um, and there is a funny story. I think it, gets, I think it, is, it shows up in one of the um, in Irving's um, existence. And in there, I think they talked about um, uh, a lot of the Irving girls from Pennsylvania teasing the girls from Maryland by singing Maryland, Oh My Maryland, the state mo- the state song, and um, referencing like the Civil War and the ongoing fighting and stuff like that. But 
you have to keep in mind too that like the Confederates came all the way up, burned Chambersburg, and actually came into Mechanicsburg yes. and in effect captured the town mm-hmm. uh, in eighteen right before the Battle of Gettysburg. So that was like what June of sixty three, I think. Yeah. So um, there was real concern there. There certainly was. Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting time, to say the least. So, yeah. uh, you know, after that, uh, a Great Depression in the 70s, and I think uh, Irving's out of business for a little while, but then comes back, and E.E. Uh, e. E. Campbell comes into the picture, and we'll talk about him in a second. It'll probably be the last segment where we go into E.E. E. and the rise of, of Irving into a much, much bigger and successful organization but I, I wanted to go back to the beginning and the whole naming of the college is kind of bizarre and from what i read <laughs> now, now i'll tell you i'll tell you what i discovered and you tell me if i'm right uh, so washington name it after washington irving which is obvious but he he actually didn't want his name on it and <laughs> and did he really donate a set of books or did somebody do that on his behalf what, what do yeah you know? that's that's the question. So um, I remember going to a reunion with um, – so what happened after the school closed, or even before, there would be regular reunions of, of uh, graduates and alum, alumni and stuff like that. And I went, so I went to the, one of the luncheons in the 90s after I wrote my thesis. And so I'm talking with all the ladies and stuff. And I told one of them, I said, yeah, there is not any kind of proof. I found a, a letter, but it's not addressed specifically to – Irving College, but pretty much Washington Irving was probably the most famous American in the middle of the 19th century. And he's getting requests like this left and right. There's a military school, I think, in Maryland that's named after him, among many other things. So, and there's a letter that says, no, I don't have any interest. Take my name off of this. Don't, you know, he was listed as being on the board of trustees. I don't think he actually ever served on the board of trustees. Right. And apparently he was, the rumor, the legend is that he gave a whole set of books but I found, you know, no proof of that or whatever. But at this reunion, I remember saying this to a couple of ladies, and they just looked at me like, how dare you say such a thing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, there is no of, way. Of course, you know? he, of course he was on the board. Of course right. he gave those books. I have right. one like, of them in my library. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Washington cutting down the cherry tree. We know, of course, that it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it could have. I just didn't find documentation of it. But Yeah, I know. I looked a little bit, too, and I... Yeah, it would be impossible to really know unless there is that, that one letter where he addresses uh, the president at the time. That's been pretty widely available for a long time. I think at this point, if there's some stray newspaper account, that would be the only thing you would find. But right. I didn't find it at the time. So, right. that's, a, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah. The college uh, really has its heyday. I, I think it's, I'm guessing, in the eight, late 1880s to 1920s, if I'm not mistaken. 30-some years, E.E. E. Campbell. So where does E.E. E. E. Campbell come from? What do you know about E.E. E. Campbell? Um, he, what I remember about, so I think he, um, college, but this I don't think I found, you may actually know this better than I do, I think. He is heading up, I think it's the Lloydsville uh, Orphan Home, I think, or something like that, up in Perry County. Yep. Um, and he is friends with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Ira Day, who is the on the Board of Trustees. And I, the sense I get is that Ira knows him from the Orphan Home and kind of recruits him first to become a professor. So he's teaching classes 
in the because the school reopens about 1888 and i think he is teaching classes by about 1890 or somewhere around there and then come it obviously becomes obvious that he is charismatic and he's a a good has a good business mind and has connections and he very quickly ascends to the presidency uh after that yeah and then it seems like he not only becomes president but owner so uh yes there seems to be some transactions where he he takes it on and then he's trying to get rid of it and he can't <laughs> and uh well that, yeah. that and i wonder actually so that's actually the history of the whole institution from the beginning so mm-hmm. The at the point that Solomon Gorgas founds the organization, founds the college, um, he's essentially the owner, and it just tran- it just ends up being so. When um, Reverend Agee takes over the college uh, after um, Marlette passes away suddenly, um, he essentially purchases the college uh, from uh, from Gorgas, or I, I can't remember if Marlette actually even owned it. I think Gorgas actually still owned it at that point. So it's never actually owned by the trustees throughout its entire history. It's mm-hmm. always owned by one person who's running the school. And Iggy, to some degree, some of people would say ran it into the ground. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but he certainly was up against you know the financial panics and the depressions of the later part of the 19th century, and the school closes. And like when Campbell buys it, he's essentially investing all his own money, and then he's building buildings and doing all this. And that's that's partly the reason why the school closes, because after he passes away, no one can really afford the trustees can't really afford to pay the heirs or pay his estate to reopen the school. And it's just it's just this odd arrangement, because normally how you have like a university run is that you've got the trustees that effectively own all the property and the bank accounts and right. investments and all that kind of stuff in trust. Um, and that never happened with the college. So I often have wondered how many other small institutions sort of fell in the same trap, particularly in the 19th century. Yeah, great question. We're talking to Chad Line and Weaver. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the history of Pennsylvania. Check out Lancaster's Golden Century, 1821 to 1921 by H.M.J. Klein. Donald Kent's The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania or the Keystone Tombstone series written by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find works of history, fiction, and nonfiction from the Keystone State. I'm back with Chad Lineweaver the author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, A History of Irving College. And we're talking about E.E. E. Campbell and the sad end of Irving College. But one one of the individuals that was mentioned in there was Thomas P. Eagy. And uh, I just wanted to salt this into the conversation while we have some time. <laughs> I, I did some research on him and I actually have his family history that he wrote. I picked that up. It, it, was, it was a pretty expensive book, rel- relatively speaking. Hard to find. And uh, the the house in Boiling Springs on the lake, the beautiful house of the columns, that was that was the Eagy home. And oh, interesting. The Eagy Cemetery is right next to it, and the Eagies are connected to Baron von Steuben. I'm uh, not Steuben. Um, the, the Baron from Mannheim, um, Stiegel, Baron Stiegel. Hmm. And there's some connection there with ironworks and so on. And so Eagy's family very well picks up. Very well connected and uh, interesting that he picks up uh, running a running a college and uh, you know seems like uh, I think he was a clergyman as well. 
And so, well, and he was running the boys' school in Mechanicsburg as well before he took on the Cumberland Valley Institute. I think he right. was running that. Yeah, so I I don't know that running it into the ground maybe maybe there were greater economic trends at the time, um, but yeah, interesting character. And so uh, one of the, one of my book projects is looking into that family history of the Eagies, and there's some interesting connections there to famous people and. Might might be interesting yeah. to bring it back, but not a project for oh, me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and a very prominent family, there's no question. I think the only thing that made me wonder is that he's regularly trying to secure loans and things from his family and from his father. And so I, part of me has to think he may have also just been stretched too thin because mm. I think he was running the Cumberland Valley Institute for a good chunk of when he was trying to run Irving College. And I also think that's what Matthew Reeser's problem was. In the was it 1916, 1917, when he buys the school, Matthew Reeser is running uh, what eventually will become Arcadia University, Beaver College at one point. Um, and they're trying to, I think, to get campuses around Pennsylvania and consolidate and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't doubt that he only runs the school for a year and then sells it back to Campbell, um, yeah. which is another oddity. But I think, you know, I think it's just probably too much. When I um, was researching Campbell, and I, I did a one of my uh, courses in my PhD program was a history of business, and I used Irving College as an example and E. E. Campbell as an entrepreneur, and I opened that paper with a description of his funeral because I went to Campbell's grave. I'm very close to it, and mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty prominent grave in the cemetery uh, in up in the hill outside Mechanicsburg. But it described the procession from the college out to uh, the cemetery and just how many people lined the streets. And yeah. uh, the student body, of course, the faculty, everybody were just heartbroken. He was, if, if there could be a beloved person in Mechanicsburg history, he's definitely up in the top maybe five. Uh, very prominent citizen, very well known. And he, Essentially, he was. He became Irving College. Without him, it didn't continue. Did you Did you see anything else about Campbell that stood out? Anything good or bad? Uh, anything I'm overlooking? You know what? I think the thing that I think with a lot of and you, and you see this every so often, in, particularly in small towns or cities. There was a a librarian I worked with at the Newark Public Library in Newark, New Jersey. When he passed away, they actually had a um, he was essentially the city historian and they had a massive parade through the city for him when he passed away. So you see this happen from time to time. And with Campbell, I think so much with him, he had a bit of business sense, but he also had a connection with people. There is not a lot of accounts where you're finding people saying, well, I don't really agree with that Campbell or blah, 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 whatever. Almost. He almost had like a, there's a, there's a story that gets told that, in the warm weather months, he would pick a dandelion every day and put it in his lapel. Yeah. And he used to comment that like, well, you know, God must really love dandelions. Like almost back to the Lincoln quote where Lincoln said, well, God must really love the common man because he created so many of them. Right. And he felt the same way about dandelions. And he, there's also a funny, there's a, the, at the Simpson library, there's a, they used to have these cameras that would do like these long panoramic photographs. And so it's a photograph of the entire school at one point. And if you look at the photo and what, how the photograph would work, how the camera would work is it would run on like a big, long, almost like a conveyor sort of thing. So it would take pictures. So it's just a small camera, but the film rolls in and out of the 
the viewing screen as it's being taken. So it takes a long time and it moves. So what happens is it Campbell's at one end with a group of students. And if you look at the other end of the photograph is Campbell again with his hat off with the same group of students. <laughs> so like, I think that's who he was. I think he, I think the girls loved him. I think he was strict, but I think he was loving. And I think like, that's what convinced so many parents to send their daughters there is like, Oh, we can trust him. We like this guy, you know? And I think that's how the whole town felt. He was so involved everywhere. Um, I think that that's, that was just him. And I think when you have a leader like that, you know, that's why it, it took on new heights, but then that's also why the school didn't know what to do after he passed away. There was no way yeah. to replace him. And sadly, it was also right, right around the time of the stock market crash and the great depression right. began. So it, it really closes an era. Um, maybe it could have continued if we don't have the great depression, but who knows, who knows? Yeah, it's very true. I think the uh, the thing that's interesting about that, and it's kind of hard to see from hindsight, but the sense I get is that the alumni certainly thought, oh, you know what, we can probably get the school reopened. We just need to find the right person or whatever, and that kind of stuff. I think really if they didn't have the problem of Cam the Campbell and the Campbell heirs at that point owning the school, if it was really owned by the Board of Trustees – yeah, maybe they have a problem with the depression, but they probably find somebody and it continues a few years beyond. Yeah. Um, but I think the the mindset might, from my perspective, of people interested in the school was they wanted to keep reopening it. Once that fire happened at Columbian Hall in the 40s, yeah. or no, I was even later than that, I think. Um, that was the death knell in a lot of ways. But Yeah. So on the what remains, uh, the original Irving Hall is still there. Uh, as an apartment complex, I think one of the other buildings is still there. The uh, president Columbian Hall is still there. Yeah. yeah, the president's house is gone, uh, replaced by a medical center. And uh, I don't know what what do you what do we uh, have left in the memory of of the world, or at least in the world around Mechanicsburg about Irving College? What should we take away from it? You know, I think the thing that for me that I take away from it is that. In some ways, you know, Mechanicsburg is a very rural place in the 1850s. I mean, it's rural in the 1940s, um, but it's it's even that much more rural in the 1850s. Mechanicsburg is, you know, is a bit of a, a dot on a map at that point. And the fact that there were people locally that felt that there needed to be a school for women for higher education in whatever form it was going to take, you know, in the early years or whatever, or whatever people's mindset was. I mean, that's kind of remarkable in a way. Um, I don't think otherwise Mechanicsburg is that progressive of a place. And that's not a slam against Mechanicsburg. I love my hometown, but it's, it's just the fact that you have a small enough town. You have only so many people probably thinking of these things or because you got plenty of people that are working in fields or doing their everyday work and stuff. So you have to have a big enough place where some of these ideas start to get sparked. So the fact that it happened there is, I mean, that's a bit of an achievement. Um, and you could say some of that is Reverend Marlad and Solomon Gorgas and the people who founded the school. But it's not just them. There has to be people a little bit beyond that, I think, that enables something like that to happen. And my question is always, well, geez, why didn't it happen in Harrisburg? Yeah. You know, Harrisburg is so much bigger. It's the state capital. You would think that's a natural place for that to take place. Or even in Carlisle, where Dickinson is well underway as a major you know, college, you know, by the 1850s, 1860s. Why is it not happening there? Why isn't Dickinson formed like a, 
a branch of their school to be, you know, for women or whatever. So because other colleges did that. Um, so it's, it, that's curious in a lot of ways. That's almost, I thought, a, a side project to determine, like, what was brewing in the town to even have that happen right. uh, in, the, in that time period. Isn't it just that Solomon Gorgas had some daughters? <laughs> it could be, yeah, that, maybe it. could be that simple. <laughs> so uh, in the minute or two we have left, where, what are you doing about the book? Is there anything coming up? Any talks? Now, now that we've dug this up after 30 years <laughs> no, it's true. and put you back that's in the limelight. <laughs> You know, it's very true. It's funny because, um, uh, I mean, I live in New Jersey now, right? And I live in a very historic, or I don't live, but I work in a historic town of Morristown. And so, like, people there all know about it, but have never heard, you know, rhyme nor reason of my hometown, let alone uh, of Irving College in particular. So my hope is to sort of start reaching out and, um, you know, doing talks both in person, but also virtually and uh, and starting to get the book out to various places. It's just sort of wild that, like, 30 years ago, I was gung-ho. Hey, let's have this uh, be known while there's still graduates alive. You know, yeah. they are even their a lot of their children are long gone at this point. So it's, you know, I'm sure to some degree there are a few of them, you know, that realize this is taking place and are smiling down from above about it. But uh, um, so, yeah, it's just a matter of getting the word out at this point. Yeah. Well, Chad, if you come into town, let me know. We'll be happy to meet. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, We've been talking to Chad Weaver, the author of That Our Daughters May Be as Cornerstones, a history of Irving College from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.